I know how you could make it too late. I've seen that, and I don't want anyone else to have to experience it. So if you are going to err, if we call it an error, let's go to the side of caution. Let's go to the side of safety. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, this is episode 105 of the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks for joining me again. Like normal, this is a chance to, to sit back or to make the most of your time while you're out driving or running and dive into another helicopter topic. Today, we are looking at a, a mental tool, I guess you call it, called en route decision point. This is different to working out something like point of no return, PNR, or equitime point, ETP. For those of you that can remember how to calculate those two points, Instead, on-route decision point is an idea that is designed to trigger or kick into gear the decision-making process when encountering deteriorating flight conditions. I really like it. It gives us as a a pilot or a crew member another layer or a tripwire that stops us continuing flying on into a situation where we may have been passively or gradually accepting the increasing risk. Miles Dunnigan is the current president of the National EMS Pilots Association in the US. The association has been around for almost 40 years, promoting safety and operational standards in the helicopter aeromedical space. Miles himself has over two decades of helicopter flying experience, with the bulk of that in the EMS role. Miles is with us today to talk about the, the background of On Route Decision Point, what it is and how you can use it. Miles, thanks very much for being able to join us and, and talk about some of the things you guys are going on. But very quickly, can you just describe your position there uh, and a little bit about the the association? Absolutely, Mick. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Uh, I'm the president of the National EMS Pilot Association. And what that means is I represent the interests of the roughly 4,000 uh, just under 4,000 EMS pilots in the United States, but we also have some international members as well. And uh, we are advocates for all pilots. We believe that if we're advocates and for pilots and give them good help, give them an environment where good outcomes can happen, then the likelihood of clinicians going home at the end of their shift, you know, that's that's the ultimate goal. It all works together, if you will. But we uh, represent the pilots with the Na- uh, National Transportation Safety Board, uh, sometimes after accidents or during accident investigations, but also with the FAA, more somewhat more of a predictive approach, talking to the folks at the FAA and you know what we're encountering in our industry, as well as CANES, which is a certification for air ambulance operators. And so we work hand in hand with all of those organizations, trying to make the uh, make the industry safer. Now on the websites, it's got the the association went back to 1984. Was there a particular event, uh, you know, what was some of the history there in terms of, of standing up the association? Well, it really came, you know, if we look at helicopter air ambulance uh, in the United States, it was born from out of the Vietnam conflict, the war in Southeast Asia. 
And uh, I'm actually, uh, as just for your information, I'm a second generation helicopter EMS pilot. My father actually started flying uh, helicopter air ambulance for the uh, Memphis, Tennessee Police Department. They had a Bell 206 B2 that they got a grant for from the government and utilized that aircraft as a uh, really the, the emergency medical technician program came out and they flew with one attendant, were able to fly one patient and of course one pilot and transport only did what we call scene flights where you land out in the middle of nowhere or in the middle of a highway, whatever that is, and uh, transport the patient uh, with very minimal care, compared, especially compared to what we're able to offer today uh, to our patients. But uh, he, he was sort of in the vanguard of that in the civilian world starting in 1970. But uh, as far as a specific uh, event that brought NIMSPA into being, you really just have to say it was the fact that in, uh, in 1984, there were probably in the two to the numbers that I've been told are, are shown as a couple of hundred helicopter air ambulances out there in the world or in the United States. And that was multiples. Um, so, you know, much smaller, much smaller industry than what we have today. And I guess folks had that forethought to know, hey, we're going to need to uh, give the pilots a voice as there's expansion. I don't think anyone could have seen us go from, you know, uh, 300 pilots in the industry to roughly, you know, almost 4,000. It's just really, really exploded in, uh, in size and scope uh, over the last probably 15 years, I guess you'd say, is really when it grew. But we've sort of, sort of reached a point now where you don't see a whole lot of growth above that number. But uh, anyway, nonetheless, that was what, what started it all. Over the years, we've had opportunities to try to improve the industry. And unfortunately, some of them have been uh, through tragedy, like the, what we're going to talk about today, which was the uh, years of 2008 and 2009. But we, I don't want to get ahead of you there, Nick, so you take Go ahead. Okay, well, look, we're going to talk, and I guess the focus will be around a, a tool that uh, you guys come up with, um, but it's applicable for, for a whole range of things, and essentially called on route decision point. And, and I guess there's different ways of, of coming back and attacking that. The few things, yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit more about the, I guess, the US EMS industry uh, and how it compares, I guess, uh, internationally. So, some, and again, just for me, looking from the outside in. And then, yeah, I mean, you've got quite a history yourself. Like, if, if we dive back into a little bit of your history there shortly, too. But looking at uh, EMS internationally, uh, and again, this is just sitting here in Brisbane from my viewpoint, it's quite often government run or, uh, and I guess in, in the UK, it might be a little bit more charity run. But generally, there there's going to be larger setups, bigger aircraft, and not necessarily maybe two pilots, but one pilot and a, you know, a semi-trained operator uh, there as well. In the US, it looks like a lot of smaller machines, much more commercialized, and yeah, a lot of different, you know, whether it's commercial pressures or, or things like that. But how, how does that sort of industry look when you guys are in there looking out? How do you sort of compare the local market there with EMS internationally? Well, that's a great question. Uh, in 2006 is when I joined helicopter air ambulance industry and it was, uh, we were getting sort of to the end of the, well, I'd like to say the end of where the widespread thought process in the industry was, it was only the pilot was involved in the decision-making and the crew didn't really have a voice. 
that was pretty much ending. They, they had a saying back in those days that the crew was just self-loading baggage, just sit there. And if I, you know, the pilot's perspective was, if I need anything with you, I will ask you. But, you know, I'm the captain of the aircraft and you just do what you're told. Well, that mentality got us really into some bad trouble from the fact that there wasn't a, uh, you know, there wasn't an, a, a crew's ability compared to, especially to what we have now, there wasn't the crew's ability to speak up and say, I'm not comfortable with this weather. The weather seems to be deteriorating or whatever the case is. We, we need to, we need to choose a different route here. We need to either turn around land or, you know, go back to where the weather was good, but we don't need to keep going into this crummy weather. We're not comfortable with that. But that was, you know, I got into the industry at the end of that. That was that thought process or that belief system was going away. A lot of that was learned. If you look back into CRM or crew resource management, back in, we, we learned a lot of these. We came to the conclusion on a lot of these issues from our, our big brothers and sisters, if you will, in the airline industry. In 1979, the a group got together and was the question was, why are we flying perfectly good airliners uh, into the ground? All of these aircraft were devoid, you know, the, the vast majority of them were devoid of any mechanical issues. We were flying perfectly good airplanes into the ground for one reason or another. And so what was causing this? Well, the good folks at NASA, who we talked about earlier, the NASA got together and said, hey, let's get all of the stakeholders involved together and see if we can figure out what's going on, why we're crashing these airplanes. And it came back to crew resource management being the biggest piece of uh, of the puzzle that was missing. Folks weren't able, didn't you know? If you're a if you're a very junior first officer and you have a very senior pilot or captain, and in those days we still you know you got to remember we were still flying commercially in the United States with airplanes that burned on 100 low lead reciprocating engines. Uh, you had a perhaps a vast uh, difference in experience level, and there was that bravado or the you know, the, the personality traits where people didn't feel like they could speak up or, you know, this pilot has 15,000 hours and I only have 750 hours as a first officer or something like that. And, you know, I don't want to speak up or I don't, I, who am I to say he's doing anything or she's doing anything wrong. And so that created a uh, silos and it created a disconnect in the pilot, you know, in, in the cockpit. And that's where we were crashing airplanes because people weren't speaking up and uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the, you didn't feel like you could challenge those senior captains or what have you, or maybe, you know, for whatever reason. Well, in 79, NASA held this get together, brought everybody in. And they, one of the points that they made was, you know, the military, the United States military went through this same issue in the air force, the uh, Navy and the Marine Corps and somewhat in the army where people, we had the same issues, but the way we fixed it was through crew, crew resource management. And so, Moving forward, the number of aircraft accidents where the aircraft were, you know, there was nothing wrong with the aircraft. It was just a breakdown on crew resource management. You know, they, they started statistically going down and they went down quickly, although it was gradual, but it was quickly. And then through the in, invention of loft line oriented flight training, where you're putting crews together in a simulator, flying these different scenarios and seeing how each crew reacts. They, they were figuring out that the problem was sort of the, as we say, the uncontrolled airspace between a pilot and a first officer's ears, if you will. The, it's those, the act and react uh, in the cockpit, in, in the interaction. That, that's where the breakdown was. So we have learned some of that. 
in helicopter air ambulance. Unfortunately, it took some very, very bad, tragic years of 2008 and 2009 when we lost 28 people in our industry. That was sort of the, I guess the term would be watershed moment where we realized as an industry, we had to do something differently. And that's where EDP comes from or in decision point. I think the good thing there too is having some criteria, which is you know number-based, it gives, again, a, a tool for the crew to talk about something, which takes the pressure off your judgment versus my judgment. It's a, you know like a third party that everyone can refer to, whether you're slowing down and all those things that we'll talk about there. So yeah, absolutely, the, the crew resource side of things. I think where I was going, though, with that uh, question just about the US was, I guess whether it's the way the insurance works or the fact that it's maybe more of a commercial operation, there's just seems to be some unique pressures on the US aeromedical market that you may not get in other, in other countries with the heli- helicopter shopping. Oh, yeah, well, and, right, and I apologize. I missed that. The, uh, yeah, the, the dynamics have really changed over the years. There was a time where there was a great deal more pressure placed on the pilots and the crews. We were uh, doing more of the counting flights you know, how many flights is this base made? Because if we're not, you know, if we're not making a certain amount uh, of flights, well, they might move the, move the base. And now I've got to drive 75 miles or I have to pull my kids out of school. So, you know, and, and then my wife's going to have to change jobs or, you know, vice versa. And, and it just creates human factors. And those are the human factors that we found were making their way into the aircraft. And there's really, you know, there's really no space for them. We have to be focused on what we're doing and doing the job at hand. So to speak of, you know, I can speak from, have, has pressure been put on me to take flights? Well, certainly. Is it, has it been in the near past? No, no, not really. Uh, to say a certain day, I, I would say in the last decade, there really hasn't been uh, any pressure personally, this is all anecdotal, but uh, personally put on me uh, to take a flight. Uh, now, I can't speak for every, you know, every operator. We have so many operators in the United States. And like you mentioned, it is commercialized. There are broke down into for-profit versus non-profit companies. And so I'm, I'm really, with NIMSP, I'm not really, that's not really my uh, wheelhouse, as we say. That's not, you know, that's not where we spend a lot of our our time. Uh, we try to figure out what's causing accidents. And if it is pressure to fly, then that's, that's definitely a, a concern. But, you know, the way that the uh, for-profit versus non-profit versus the billing, uh, that's really not Something that I'm, I'm very well versed in because I'm, you know, I've never seen an EMS helicopter bill in almost 17 years of flying. That's, you know, that, that just goes to the patient. So I, I don't really know how that works. I, I wouldn't be able to give you an educated uh, example, but I can tell you, yes, there was the environment in the United States. There was pressure to fly, but a lot of that has gone away for the most part. I know there are, you know, I hear tales of companies that still do uh, give. Sort of un, well, I mean, unreal expectations on their on their pilots and crews to go out when other companies might not. Uh, but I don't, you know, that's all anecdotal as well. I haven't worked for that company or any of those companies that have that reputation, so I really can't speak to it. It's just hearsay, if you will. Yeah, perfect. And again, completely hearsay from my point. It's just you know, looking in from from the outside. I guess it's yeah, that sort of filters through just a little bit. When, when you're seeing different news articles or commentary come back. So, yeah, it was just purely for, for interest there. Uh, Miles, let's talk about your career quickly in terms of just giving people an idea of, of how you got to, to where you are and 
you know, I guess then when you speak about on a decision point, the fact that you're coming from <laughs> from somewhere with a, a little bit of experience, what were your yeah, take us back to the very first days. Where did you get involved? Where were your first uh, sort of lessons? And then how did you start out in the in the EMS industry? Well, okay, that um, I'll try to keep it keep it short, Nick. Uh, it uh, goes back to really my earliest memories flying with my father. He was like I mentioned earlier, a police pilot here in Memphis, Tennessee. He flew, uh, started flying helicopters in 1969, and uh, he in '73 he left the company that or, or left the police department and went to work in a corporate environment for a lumber company based here in Memphis, Tennessee that owned about a half a million acres between Cairo, Illinois, down to Natchez, Mississippi, which is just north of New Orleans. And uh, the best way to see that half million acres, it all laid within about 10 to 15 miles of the Mississippi River. So the best way to see it uh, in a timely manner was a helicopter. And so the president of the company bought a helicopter, bought a, a 206, Bell 206, and uh, that's what they flew until 1977, and then in 19, late 1977, they bought their first 341 Gazelle, which was made by Aerospecial. That was the first helicopter I ever actually flew. I remember riding in the 206, but the Gazelle was the first one actually. You could flip the pedals up in a Gazelle, and uh, Dad could put a phone book behind my back, and I could reach the collective, the cyclic, and the pedals. So it was kind of cool. So that was kind of like learning how to fly in a race car. If, uh, you know, Nigel Mansell or uh, Michael Schumacher were to tell their story, I'm sure it'd be interesting. You know, they got to probably learn to drive in some remarkable cars. Well, I got to fly, learn to fly in remarkable helicopters. Most of my time was in turbines, flew gazelles, and went to A-Stars. I got to go, I was youngest to go through the uh, factory school at Aerospatial for the A-Star in Grand Prairie, Texas, back when I was 16. Wow. And uh, so it's a little bit of reset time in uh, Hughes 269A. And then uh, F-28A Instrum, but uh, flew there and then went on to work, flew some corporate jobs through the early 90s, flew uh, in the Gulf of Mexico for what was Air Logistics, which is now Bristow. Then I went to work for a, uh, a TV station in Memphis, and we were flying about 750 hours a year in a Jet Ranger, flew there and then in 2001, I left and went to work for a NASCAR team. Uh, a fellow named Dale Earnhardt hired me and uh, moved me and my family to North Carolina. I flew for him. Unfortunately, he was killed at the Daytona 500 and uh, stayed with that company for about six months. Went to work for Bobby Labonte, another NASCAR driver. Stayed there a couple of years and then moved back to Memphis. Worked a short time for the TV station again and then started my EMS career in 2006. And that's when what has pretty much put me where I am now, you know, flying and working with NIMSPA with the EMS Pilot Association. But one thing I think, uh, if we talk, if we think about it, in this industry, unfortunately, we lose friends. We lose uh, very close friends. And I think that's what you know has gotten me here to try to help so no one else has to go through what we go through after a crash occurs. Holding up our friends' knapsacks, you know, at our crew quarters, uh, having to rush in to try to get a hold of their wives or uh, husbands, loved ones, you know, at this, you know, to try to protect them during these terrible moments. It's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone else to have to see my friends in a, in a debris field the way I've had to. I don't, I don't think anybody should have to see that. And if we can do something to prevent it, well, I think we need to as an industry, no matter where you live, what company you fly for, we need to do everything we can to make sure that no one else has to endure that pain. And um, that's where we came up with 
our last year we started a promotion called Everyone Goes Home. We work with the fallen firefighters here in the United States. They they have the trademark on that on that saying, but it, they loaned it to us, if you will, because they knew the importance of trying to uh, to get all of our pilots and crew members home at the end of our shifts has to be our number one goal. So that's what made me, I guess, losing friends, very close friends uh, in helicopter and uh, fixed wing accidents has kind of led me to that. So. Look, it sounds like you, you've seen a, a lot out there. When I came across your, your LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago, and, and again, it's about on route decision point and the criteria of what we're going to talk about. Since then, I've been I've been thinking of the flights, and it's amazing once you start thinking how quickly those particular flights come back to, to the recall. Normally, when we're flying, you can see the horizon. You've got this huge, big airspace, and you've got that. You know, you know, I guess you call it room. You know, you've you've got plenty of time to react to things. As the the weather, whether it's you know smoke, rain, cloud, all those things starts to converge, and we start to shrink lower and lower to the ground, it, that it feels like that world just starts to to soak into a, like a tiny little bubble. And, and again, I'm thinking of those flights there where I've been flying, and start to slow down. You can't see as far, and, and the world just shrinks around you until you're in this this tiny little bubble that you're sort of flying along and you, you know, you start to feel, you know, you, you, your voice goes up a little bit. The, the heart rate starts to go up. Can you talk about on route decision point? And, and I guess, you know, if there's any particular fights you've been on or if you experience that, that same sort of feeling when you talk to other pilots where you just feel that whole world just start to, to sort of shrink down into a little bubble. Absolutely. Nick, you did a perfect job of describing it. I could not have, uh, I could not have described it any better myself. The, and I'm, I'll take you back to uh, a story. Okay. In 2004, I lost a very good friend, uh, July of 2004, Bob Giard. He flew for regional one out of South Carolina and uh, crashed with and, uh, himself, his uh, two clinicians and the patient all perished in, in the crash. And uh, it, it was, you know, wow. the reality of it, Bob was one of my best friends. Uh, we had flown together, just a, a great guy, just a, a, a you know, prince of a guy, the guy, you know, not the guy that this wasn't going to happen to. And so I remember asking my father, who my father passed away two years ago, but he was a very, very accomplished, you know, roughly uh, 18,000 hour total time fixed wing helicopter pilot. He's, he had, uh, he had been around, been, been flying for a long, long time. And I remember after Bob's accident, asking my father, you know what, how did you guys, how, how did you do it back in, in 1970 with a Bell 206 with steam gauges with perhaps a turn and bank, maybe an artificial horizon, an altimeter, but very, very basic equipment, nothing like, not even close to what we have today. But this was again in 2004. So, you know, but even then the technology had really changed from the, you know, 1970. But I asked him, I said, dad, how, you know, I said, what, uh, First off, what were your minimums? And he said, well, we didn't really have any minimums. Well, Dad, how how did you not have minimums? He said, well, we were public service. So it was really incumbent upon us. If we wanted to go, we went. I said, so you would go out in 200 and a half, you know, 200 foot ceiling, half mile visibility? Well, that was usually a landing minimum, but we would go out in really crummy weather. And I said, okay, well, Dad, my next question is, well, then how did you know when to turn around. 
And he just kind of looked at me with kind of a puzzled look and kind of a pregnant pause. And he said, well, son, I'll be honest with you. It was when the hair on the back of my head started to stick up. I knew something was wrong. I knew there was an issue. I knew there was something that was amiss. And so we had to do something different. Of course, I'm sitting here and I was born in 1972. And so it's going through my mind, dad, you're lucky to have survived this time. And I wouldn't have even been here had an accident occurred. And you were out flying in terrible weather. And he said, well, son, I'm not proud of it. We did the job. But yes, we did not have any kind of the safety features that we have in our industry, even at, even at that time, which I was two years before getting into helicopter EMS. I was just flying uh, you know, news at this point. But the bottom line was there wasn't a crutch. Or there wasn't a um, something to kind of rely on. Uh, as a, this is where we draw the line and we're not going to continue down this path. That's where Andrew's decision point comes in. Can I go into that? that Yeah, let's, let's actually, uh, sorry, we've been dragging people along, (laughs) waiting to hear what it is. Yes, yes. Well, what it comes down to is as, as you, you know, very, very well, uh, vividly described you, as we encounter deteriorating weather conditions, ceiling and visibility, either or, or both together. As a pilot, we're going to, I know this is what happens to me, is my head kind of starts moving forward, maybe what, two or three inches to get closer to the windscreen as if that's going to help the visibility. And I'm sort of maybe, uh, maybe it's starting to deteriorate. And then I'm reaching over to my, with my left hand and I'm pushing down on my collective just a little bit. And then with my right hand, I'm pulling back on the cyclic. That's keeping my nose up. And so I'm starting to both take out the power, which makes me start to descend and then start to decelerate. All right. Well, so this is a great place to stop right there and say, what, you know, how low do we go? In my father's world, it was when the hair on the back of your head stands up. Well, as we already decided, that's too late. Sometimes you're already in a place where you can't recover at that point. Luckily, he always was able to. But so what we've done within Root Decision Point is we put on, you've reached a point where you're going to do one of three things. The first thing you can do is not descend anymore, not decelerate anymore. But once you have reached a predetermined altitude, I'm going to make for round numbers, I'm going to say a thousand feet. Once I descend, if my cruising altitude is 1500 or 2000 feet and I descend down to a thousand feet at that point, or I decelerate to 90 knots. Let's say I'm in my B2 A star or what have you, an, an aircraft that my cruising speed is 120 knots. And I decelerate to 90 knots. Upon decelerating to that point, I've reached my in route decision point. Or if I have descended down to 1,000 feet, I have reached an in route decision point. And again, we're going to do one of these three things. The first one is turn without descending, turn and go back to where the weather is good. That's a great option, and it's worked for me a number of times. It's, as they say, it has saved my bacon. Number two, we're going to land right there. Perhaps we still have good visibility. We can see, uh, a football field or a baseball field or an open, you know, an open area that is safe, we can land right there and wait the weather out, let it go. Or our third option, which is we will, we will simply shoot an instrument approach to recapture back to an airport. Now that can be an LPV approach if we're WAS equipped or an ILS approach or what have you. But the bottom line is where all three of these come together we have made a decision. We're not going to continue in VFR condition or trying to maintain VFR 
while we're actually in IFR conditions. We're not going to continue trying to use visual reference to the ground when we can't see it anymore. We're not going to keep pushing and get lower and lower and lower. That's what we found in 2008, 2009 with the post and, and the years prior to that, the uncontrolled flight into terrain or CFIT or controlled flight into terrain uh, or unintentional instrument meteorological conditions. When that all occurs, we see pilots turning and when they turn, they descend and they hit the ground. So this, the, the inward decision point is going to keep us away from what's going to hurt us. We're going to use our autopilot, which is a great piece that almost all EMS helicopters in the United States are now equipped with. They weren't 10 years ago, but a vast majority of them are. But we're going to allow the autopilot to help us out. And we're going to either turn and go back to where the weather's good. We're going to land right there, or we're going to go and shoot that instrument approach and recapture, not continuing in into IFR trying to maintain VFR uh, ground rapids. What I really like about this, Miles, is it it starts to, to trigger, you know, I guess a change in mindset or it puts you in a position where you now have to start making decisions because, again, when it's happened to me, you, you have that slow down, you start descending. But sometimes it's not a, a clear delineation where you then switch into decision-making mode because you're still often focused on, on where you're going and now you're starting to look at you know, how you can kind of get there. And But it's, as you said, often it's, it's unconscious. You start slowing down, but especially as a crew now, if you're looking across and you're seeing, or if you're looking from the back into the front, you're seeing the airspeed start to drop. It starts to, to give you, you know, some kind of trigger point where you are now switching modes and you are, are now kind of at least recognizing to yourself that, okay, uh, something's changed. Right. No, that's exactly right. And that, that is an added piece that the crew, especially in your EC-130s, which are, you know, sort of a wide open cockpit and the A-stars where they can see up. It's not as easy in the 206, the 407. Uh, it's a little more difficult in them. Uh, but in the aircraft that have the open cockpits, the, the crew in the back can see very well. And then, of course, in any of these aircraft, that you know, with, if I have a seasoned crew, a, a, a clinician, a nurse or a paramedic who's been flying for over a year, they can feel when the aircraft starts to pitch, the nose starts to pitch up, when you start to relieve, the, you know, lower the collective, they can tell you're making a power change. So they, you know, even if they can't see the gauges, they can tell that there's a change in the way you're flying. And so they'll start to quiz. Is everything okay? Do you still feel like we have minimums? Are we going to be able to continue? And those are all completely fine questions to ask. One thing that we've noticed, pilots, as we encounter these deteriorating weather conditions, we will get target fixate. We'll either fixate, especially if we don't have a great deal of instrument experience and we're still trying to hand fly the aircraft, we will start to focus on one specific gauge. It might be the attitude indicator or the artificial horizon. It could be the vertical speed indicator or the airspeed indicator, but we have to get our scan. And this is where we have to make decisions. Like you mentioned, you have to make a decision. You can't just sit there and, let things happen and be a passenger in the aircraft. You have to be the captain of the aircraft and you have to make it do what you know it needs to do. And that's where the inward decision point comes into there. Let's say, you know, some folks might not want to make a decision or they, they might be afraid they're making it too soon. You're not, I, I don't know of how you could make it too soon. I know how you could make it too late. I've seen that and I don't want anyone else to have to experience it. So if you are going to error, if we call it an error, Let's go to the side of caution. Let's go to the side of safety. And we first see the wisps of clouds, and we can tell that the temperature and the dew point are married up. They're right together. There's a light wind out of the south. 
in our part of the world. That's a perfect opportunity for the formation of, of clouds or of, of fog. So let's go ahead and get us out of that situation so that we don't have to shoot that instrument approach at the end of this flight. Let's go ahead and get back to where the weather's good and land, and we'll wait it out. It does get a little more complex once you put a patient on board. When we have a patient on board, we found statistically that you're more likely to push on through crummy weather. That's not a good thing. Of course, that's part of, you know, this is, we, we do something that is very difficult and oftentimes we make it look very easy, but it's not. And so that, that adds, there's another factor there when you start putting a patient on board. Now we have to figure out, can we get to another hospital or can we find somewhere that we can land where we can have cell coverage, where we can get an ambulance brought to us so that the patient can make the, the remainder of the trip in an ambulance in a timely manner. So, you know, those are all factors that we have to take into consideration. And when we you find yourself in that circumstance, it was better to have let the, the patient go by ground ambulance rather than put them in a helicopter and then be out in the middle of nowhere and not be able to link up with an ambulance in a timely manner. And the patient has a bad outcome. But that outcome is better than, you know, tearing up an aircraft and crashing an aircraft and, and having everyone pass away. So that, that's sort of a, uh, a tough, I guess, a tough nut you have to crack. And I guess the best answer that I found is to just not put your crew or your patient in that circumstance. And, and the best way is to just take them by a ground ambulance. And that's something that we have, you know, not going down into a rabbit hole. Nick, but we have to remember that we don't fly missions in helicopter air ambulance. We make flights. The missions are the, the men and women of our military that put on a suit and go out there and, you know, uh, fight for our freedoms and our liberties. Those, those are the, th those folks are flying missions. We make flights. Everyone we fly can be put into a ground ambulance and transported. What we're doing is we're giving that, that patient time, time that they might not have, but that, that's what we have to remember we're doing. We're not doing, you know, if we can't guarantee we can transport this patient in a timely manner, then we don't need to take that flight. We don't need to make that flight. Uh, the ground ambulance is a better option at that point. It's really interesting how subtle changes in, in language just bring a, a little bit of a, a different filter to things. Uh, so you're right, even talking about that difference between flights and, and missions, switches something in, in, in the back of your mind when you're doing decision making. So it's, yeah, it's just interesting to me, like the psychology of that, where you can change one word and it just brings a little bit of a different flavor uh, to what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, our, our men and women of our military, you know, they're asked to do remarkable things in the aircraft, things I can't even imagine. I never served in our military. So, I, you know, I have so much respect and, and understand, but that's something that they have to remove from their mindset, if you will, when they come and work in the civilian world in helicopter and ambulance where we're doing rapid transport. We're not, we're not doing search and rescue. There are operators out there that do, but the vast majority don't have a hoist or have the hoist capability. They don't do the search and rescue. We simply go out and pick up the patient and deliver them to the higher level of care. Uh, so we have to, you know, you have to work it in a way to take that out of your mindset. And, and a lot of time, I mean, our military, our pilots are put through so much training that that is hard to, to, to remove. And it, it you know, it, it's, it's a hard, uh, it, it's a hard prospect to try to get that mentality and to put it in a context where, you know, the, our military pilots 
the men and women who have served our country understand that it's you know it's a different uh, not necessarily a different skill set but it's a different application for what we do versus what they did in our military. All right, Miles, I've got a few questions there, and I guess things to to come back in and talk around that. But can you just go through the, the figures again for that you got that you are using with the association there for EDP? Okay, well, um, in route decision point, uh, also known as the down by thirty protocol, is if you decelerate from uh, by thirty knots below your cruise speed. So if that's one hundred and forty knots in your Augusta, if you decel down to one hundred and ten, or if you decelerate down to a predetermined lowest safe altitude and of course we'll look at that if it's you know for round numbers if we're cruising at 2,000 foot above the ground and we make our uh, minimum safe altitude a thousand foot you know giving us clearance in in the united states 135 600 rules give us you have to have a, a daytime you have to cross the highest obstacle during daylight hours at 300 foot above that obstacle but at night, they raise it up 200 more feet to give you a 500-foot clearance of your highest obstacle. So that's what we use sort of as the parameters. So 300 day, 500 night above your highest obstacle. If you descend down to just above that level, just above that number, that's your automatic. We're going to turn around. So decel or down by 30 or decel to uh, just above our MOCA, our minimum obstacle clearance altitude. We're going to do at that point, we're going to make one of the, the three decisions, turn, land, or go shoot an instrument approach and recapture. Yeah, what's really good about that is generally, you know, we've got our visual net conditions uh, in, in Australia, and I'm sure there'll be something similar there with, with the FAA. And often when you're flying, you're looking at that in terms of how far you are from cloud, what your visibility is, and comparing that to the you know, minimum legal requirements. And that then becomes your focus in terms of, you know, can I continue? Do I have the distance off the cloud or do I have the visibility? But, you know, you can be puttering along at like 20, 20 knots or 40 knots with legal requirements, but you're still back at a really, really slow speed. So this kind of just gives you a couple of extra, you know, elements to it in terms of when you notice you're dropping the speed back or when you descend to a, a certain height to uh, trigger that decision. Because there's a campaign in Australia at the moment called, you know, if in doubt, land. But that, mm-hmm. you know, it's a pretty wide open, you know, I, I guess it gives you that, that background to, to land and, and you've got something there to back you up on, but it's it's left wide open. Whereas that on route decision point just gives you a little bit more structure to work with. Certainly. Well, and that's, you know, this is a, uh, you know, a top-down approach. So if you are trained in in route decision point or the down by 30 protocol, one thing that has to happen is that management has to, if, some, if Joe Lunchbucket, the pilot, is flying along and he decides, hey, whether you know, I've reached one of these, uh, you know, down, either uh, decelled to my MOCA or my minimum obstacle clearance altitude or decelerated down to by 30 knots, and I'm electing to do one of these three options, whenever that is done, the management has to support the pilot and the crew for making that decision. And so that's another big piece. It's really hard for someone to use this as an out and then for management to come back and say, well, don't you think you could have pushed it a little bit farther? Well, that's really not the message we're looking for, is it? I mean, that's our management has to stand behind our pilots 
when these men and women make these decisions. And that, so that's something I don't think I really touched on earlier, but something I wanted to say so that it's not, you know, this, the inner decision point is a, a, a known, you know, a, a line of demarcation. We don't go any further in this environment. We, we are going to make a change. We're not going to continue down this road. It doesn't remove all of the responsibility from the pilot, but it gives the pilot an opportunity to have an out. But also, it's an opportunity for the management to shine and to support good decision-making. That's We really have to talk about that, too. But I, um, And I think that goes along with the, you know, the land the darn helicopter, like uh, the, the principle that you're talking about that is going on in Australia right now. Or, or what, what, what was the saying again? If in doubt, land. If in doubt, land. I mean, that it can't really be any simpler than that. I know in the aircraft, it can get pretty complex, but that makes perfect sense to me. Just land the helicopter. If in doubt, land. I'd, I'd love to know your perspective. You know, you've gone through some of these you know, senior positions where you're responsible for other pilots because I found a big difference in my career, I guess, before I've been responsible for others um, in authorization and then afterwards, is I, I think most frontline pilots or when, when you're new in your career, you probably put more pressure on yourself or you would go further than your supervisors or your management would actually want you to go because you think you're trying to do the right thing where if you ask a, a supervisor, they say, oh, no, of course I want you to turn back. Of course we want you to land. But often when you're that junior or you know, the front line, I guess you may actually be, you feel that pressure to, to go further, uh, whereas if you had, then had actually had a chance to come back and, and talk with someone, they said, no, of course land. You know, of course come back. Uh, can you talk about that sort of experience or if you feel that change in yourself over time? Uh, yes, I, I believe so. I, uh, I can say I have definitely experienced that feeling that, uh, that kind of inertia that keep, or the, the, the momentum that you start getting some confidence uh, and then you start, it, it can lead to practical drift where I got away with it this time. So now this is the new threshold and then I get away with pushing maybe the weather a little bit further and well, now that's the new level or the limit. And so if you're not careful, you, you see both the practical drift and occurring, and, but you can also see a normalization of deviance, deviant behavior where that's accepted and no one says anything. And so we don't want to be a part of that. But in my younger career, you know, the, the thought was, you know, a two minute lift time to go out on a scene flight in a helicopter and, that was wrong. Now it took us a little while to realize that was wrong and realize you needed to do a walk around. You needed to, you know, look, make sure all your, everything was uh, connected. You know, you're, uh, you're going through your checklist and you're looking at the aircraft to make sure that all the latches were, were fastened and so forth. You know, the bonnet was down and you're ready to go, but that was not always the mentality. The mentality was speed, hurry, hurry, hurry. And as a young pilot, I was very, very, motivated to meet that expectation well then we realized after a couple of accidents at the company i was working for that that wasn't necessarily the best idea or the best approach but it took it took some time to i guess discern that and to to come to that conclusion that you know we were having a lot of near misses or high potential situations or circumstances that were had a high potential to lead to an accident or an incident and it's, it took 
starting instead of just going blindly off into the sunset or you know into the flight, you had to actually evaluate post-flight what went right, what went wrong, and then started looking at in the big picture. Well, okay, well we had this experience, and then a pilot down the road at one of our other bases had a, a similar experience. So maybe in a predictive manner, this is something we need to focus on. And that came back from to uh, walk around, you know, walking around the aircraft before you depart, doing a fire guard where you put one or two clinicians on the nose of the aircraft as we're cranking up just to make sure, number one, your tail rotor is safe. No one is running up to it as you're cranking, but two, make sure that the aircraft isn't venting smoke or dropping fuel out on the ground. But those are just two examples of things that that we had. As, as I personally got older, I was able to start looking at the rest of the industry at best practices, what they were doing. And those were things, those were uh, pieces that I was able to bring to the company I was flying for at the time. And that they, they do all that to this day, actually. Yeah, I, get, yeah, I, I think if... Most chief pilots, most supervisors are going to want the pilots flying under them to be on the conservative side. So if you've got to make a decision, choose the, the conservative option. I think most chief pilots and supervisors would much prefer that. And sometimes that's lost in, in communication in terms of, of getting the job done. But I think if you sat down with them and asked, hey, here's the situation, which way would you prefer me to go? I think almost all of them would say, for, just for their own peace of mind, take the take the conservative option. Right, absolutely. On that, um, yeah, so and the other one I was just going to circle back to, well, there's just two things there, I'll talk about the other ones shortly. But with the students going out to the training area, that was one of the things I tried to remember to talk to them all the time, especially first training area flights um, or, or the early phases, is just explicitly tell them, look, you have permission to land because sometimes it, it's not in their, their toolbox. At that stage, and unless you tell them, they don't actually know that they're, they're able to go and land in a paddock out in the training area if they're trying to come back. I tried to, you know, I didn't have that terminology or on-route decision point to, I guess, talk through them and give them that, that as a tool. But I'll try to make a point that you absolutely have permission. If you, if you need to land out there for whatever reason, you have permission to, to land out there. And I, I hope that just gave them, you know, again, took a little bit of the pressure off and gave them, you know, whether you want to call it a tool or whatever it is in, in, their, in their toolbox, that they could, they could pull that out. And uh, I guess we take it for granted as we go on in our career, but that's probably a good thing, a good conversation point for supervisors to have if listening to this and want to introduce it in your company, as long as on a decision point, it's just, I guess, just always pushing home that point that, you know, much prefer you to be on the ground than, than trying to fly and, uh, and get somewhere. Absolutely. And that, you know, the, the old adage, I'd rather be down here wishing I was up there than up there wishing I could get down there. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it, and it holds it holds water. You know, Nick. I mean, you know who? I know I've been uh, definitely in, on flights where I was nervous or scared, or you know, the fear was there. And boy, this is this is starting to deteriorate quickly, and I have to do something to get me out of this situation. Whether it was in the Gulf of Mexico, or flying corporate, or flying for one of the NASCAR teams, or in EMS, every facet of the industry has an in route portion, whether you're flying across country to go put air conditioners on the roof of a supermarket or going to pick up Christmas trees and pull off of a mountain, whatever, you, you do have an en route portion of that flight. So that's where EDP can be utilized. And something you mentioned, the school, 
something that I don't think as an industry in the United States that we've done a good job of is going, and, and this is something that uh, I've advocated. I need to do it. Hopefully we won't, you know, get locked back down. The last 18 months has been difficult here. As I know you mentioned, Australia's back under the lockdown, but uh, hopefully we can get out to schools and mentor and spend some time with, with young pilots, aspiring pilots, and, you know, help try to, I guess, dispel some of these myths of, you know, you got to go, uh, you know, the, give them the, the scenario. I believe the, the Star Trek show had the unwinnable mission. We need to give students the unwinnable mission, but do it in the classroom setting with the instructor and, you know, see how far they're going to go. And, and then, you know, just finally at the end, remind them, okay, stop. All right. It, it, you could have landed back here. You could have landed here. You could have said no more and turned around here. But instead, do you see how you're getting yourself into this cascading chain of events that you have less and less opportunity to get yourself out of? And so we need to teach that. And I think that's a way in the law of effect of trying to drive home that point with a young student. I was expecting you, you know, I was expecting you to stop here. But here now we're all the way down here. And now our chances of a good outcome go down a great deal. So if you just stopped here, we could have been enjoying pizza and a beer, but instead, you know, we're picking up pieces of a, a destroyed aircraft and why didn't you just stop here? So using that as a rule or using that as an example, I think we need to do a better job as an industry, as those who have been in the industry for some time, going and, and talking to these younger pilots that are just coming in so that they can understand where, you know, we've, we've experienced this, they have not. So it's incumbent upon us to share our experience with them so that they don't have to go through what we went through. Look, I think it might be a really good place to, to start to, to close things up. And yeah, again, what I really appreciate from that on a decision point uh, as a tool is it just gives you, you know, something else to when that, that world starts to close in. And as you said, your dad spoke about, you know, the hairs on the back of his neck, it just gives a, a little bit more structure to that. And yeah, I, I guess, clues the decision making to the fact that you're now in a different environment and, and start making decisions so uh, look I, I really appreciate you know being able to have that to, to use and, and lean on and for your time for, for talking about it was there anything else you wanted to sort of cover to, to close it out no i just uh one thing i do mick is i ask every pilot and uh, every nurse paramedic respiratory therapist that i meet i ask them what their number one job is and I get a number of different answers. I'll get, well, what's for lunch or what's for dinner or I'll remind them, no, no, your number one job is going home at the end of your shift. So I just want to put that out there to everyone. And if anyone is interested or I have helmet stickers that have everyone goes home, if anyone out there would like uh, me to mail them any, uh, I would be more than happy to send those out. They might take a little while to get across the pond, but it uh, doesn't matter where you are. We will send those out because that, that is the message of the National EMS Pilot Association. Our number one job is everyone goes home. So I'd be more than happy to share that with anyone who is interested. And do you want to plug your website or at least sort of contact details where people can track you down or, or track down the association? Absolutely. NIMSPA.org is our website. And uh, you'll see we have a toolbox there. We have links to the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team. And then there's the International Helicopter Safety Team. The, uh, but we also have our YouTube channel, which is where you'll find the video, I think, that you saw that we shared on LinkedIn. Yes, please 
any of these, come and come and check us out. And we have a Facebook page. We're on Instagram and all of that cool stuff. So, you know, we please look for us and, uh, you know, if we can do anything to help, if there's any questions, myself and the board of directors, we're all engaged and want to help, excuse me, help the industry any way we can. So please feel free to, to connect with us. We will, uh, we're, we're here to help. I'll put that, uh, I'll put the video on the blog post that goes with the audio here and I'll uh, put a whole heap of links on the page there. Uh, so if you're listening to this, you can jump on the webpage, you can follow those links back and uh, check out uh, Miles and, and the crew and all the information there for the association. Miles, look, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully we've got some uh, good info out there for people and uh, thanks again just so much for your time. You bet. I can do anything. Let me know. Thanks, Nick. When I was editing the audio, I had a question come up that I wanted to clarify with Miles, and I think it's worth capturing here. The benefit of on-route decision point is in the decision-making process that it triggers. You or your organization may decide to come up with your own particular figures that you want to use. Down by 30, i.e. if you're slowing down from your normal cruise by 30 knots because of the, of the conditions, that's probably a, a pretty good figure for the performance of most helicopters to start thinking about what you're going to do. The high trigger that you might use could be quite different depending on the area that you're operating in and the terrain and the obstacles. But the intent is that once you've crept down in height, down to where you're starting to think about the the minimum legal clearances, then that should be the trigger for on-route decision point. Miles made the offer. If you did want to get any swag, off the National EMS Pilots Association. There are a number of different stickers and wristbands there. And you can see those on the front page of the website if you head over to uh, NEMSA, so N-E-M-S-P-A.org, or just do a search for National EMS Pilots Association. There'll be links for anything mentioned in the show, in the show notes, or the blog post for this interview at rotarywingshow.com. If you remember Mike Atkinson, Mike was on the show in episode 75. He was a ex-Army Kiowa pilot that is taking on these different solo survival expeditions and turning them into documentaries. At the moment, Mike is somewhere in the Great Barrier Reef, sailing in a, a dugout canoe that he constructed himself completely from scratch. You can have a look at outbackmike.com for some photos and details of that particular trip. He's also on Facebook under Outback Mike. And as he gets pockets of phone reception, he is posting photos and clips on there of himself doing these uh, crazy survival stuff that he, that he does. This current trip is 1,500 kilometres, going from just south of Townsville on the Australian East Coast all the way out through the Great Barrier Reef to the tip of Cape York and the Thursday Island area. It's completely solo. There is no support crew, there's no support boat, there's no film crews. It's just him, some of the drones that he takes for filming, and this little outrigger sailing canoe and what food that he can find on the way. So send him a message, look him up on Facebook at Outback Mike. I've got a couple of emails in over the last fortnight from you. It's fun finding out where you are listening from and where you're up to in your, in your flying careers. I got to jump on a video call with Todd in Florida, which was some fun there too. 
If you are bored, drop me a note at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. World Helicopter Day is this Sunday. Woohoo! Wishing you blue skies and calm conditions wherever you will be to celebrate the day. Independent Helicopters in New York, Heather and the, and the team have held an event there every single year that the, the day has been operating for. Also in the US, we've got the American Helicopter Museum in Pennsylvania. Across the ditch in the UK, we've got the Helicopter Museum at Somerset is open. They've got their events running there, the chance to sit in the cockpit of a behind and also see the links that set the, the world speed record for helicopters. Manchester, we've got Flight Academy at the City Airport Manchester. They've got some events on there. You can go and uh, check out. And all these events I'm listing are listed on worldhelicopterday.com. You can have a look at. And also in the UK, again, we've got Richard Mornington Sanford, who you've heard on this show. He's uh, made it back from uh, Borneo to the UK, and he's running his uh, quite famous tea and biscuits uh, sessions, talking all things flying and Robinson at Sloan Helicopters. With COVID putting a bit of a dampener on things, that's all the actual listed events we've got uh, going for this year. So it's not uh, too late. You're cutting it close. If you do want to get an event listed between now and Sunday, jump on worldhelicopterday.com and get your details in. And, yeah, get your event shared with the, the world. Support for this podcast comes from listeners just like you who are chipping in to keep the lights on and the bandwidth flowing. This is very much a garage operation. It's just me, a mic, a phone line, and a laptop. If you were happy to help me out and were interested, please take a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Thank you to these amazingly good-looking and kind folks who are Patreon supporters of the show. Max, Jim, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Adar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Carolyn, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Rendell. That's it for this show. Until I talk to you again, wishing you all the very best.